0: Today's scripture reading is Mark 1, 9-13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. And welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you this morning, and thank you for braving uh, Snowmageddon to get out here. Glad it wasn't as bad as we thought it was going to be. My name is Jonathan Mosher. It's my privilege and honor to open the word with you and for you this morning. And so if you can turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Last week we began a new series um, working our way through the book of Mark. Um, this, this really incredible book, and, and I think in a, lot, uh, in a lot of ways a forgotten gospel um, within mainstream Christianity. It's one that you don't hear a lot about. Probably many of you haven't heard a sermon series about it. And for that reason, and then also just because of the kind of rhythm that we want to establish of being in both the Old and the New Testament, we decided to take a, a substantial amount of time over the course of this year to spend uh, in the book of Mark. And so I'm glad that you're here as we dive into the second week of that. If you were here last week, we met um, this very interesting character, a man named John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. John, in many ways, is really an Old Testament prophet who makes his way into the New Testament. If you look at the message that he is declaring, it's a message of returning to God, a message of of being reminded of what the children of Israel had long since forgotten, of returning to the one who had pursued them and loved them and cared for them and called them. And so John, in many ways, really is this Old Testament prophet. We first meet him in the wilderness. And to a Jewish mind, hearing that term wilderness, all kinds of things would have been brought up for them, but primarily what they would have thought about was the children of Israel wandering for 40 years having just experienced miraculous deliverance. I mean, truly miraculous. Think about it. The children of Israel leaving Egypt, being led through the waters, where the waters literally parted to either side of them, and the children walked through on dry ground, and as the children of Israel found their way to the bank on the other side, and as the the armies of Egypt began to ride through that water, the water crashed back down, destroying the armies of Pharaoh, and yet just... Days later, they're worshiping false gods and longing for the passing fancies and experiences of slavery in Egypt. And in many ways, this is once again where the people of God found themselves, maybe not physically wandering in the wilderness, but certainly spiritually wandering. And if that's not enough, we're told that John in many ways resembled the prophet Elijah, that here he was being girded up with a leather belt, he was wearing camel hair, he was eating wild locust and honey. I mean, this guy is, is a sight to the eyes. I mean, he's a, he's a strange character. And what we're told is that God chose not to use the religious institutions of the day and not to use the people who were educated and wise, uh, who came from the right families and went through the right schools to bring in the message of the gospel, but rather he uses this strange character to be the one who's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. That John comes onto the scene to announce that Jesus is God. And last week, we talked about at length was the idea that Mark records all of what's happening to force us to come face to face with Jesus. That when you see Jesus for who he is, when you encounter him and experience him, when you when you see his beauty and, and experience his wonders, you are forced to reckon with Jesus that either he demands our everything as the one who is the God-man, or he deserves no attention at all and is a liar and a lunatic. So Mark writes to force us to encounter Jesus, but there's also a very practical reason that he wrote, and we didn't have time to talk about it last week, but Mark, in addition, wrote to remind the readers of the truth in an era of uncertainty and martyrdom. See, Mark's primary audience in this gospel is the Christians that were gathered in Rome, and those particular Christians found themselves in a very, very difficult season of crisis. Nero had just become the emperor of Rome, and as he became emperor, this man who was so full of himself and in many people's minds and estimation probably suffered with some sort of mental illness or derangement, this man steps into a position of power and immediately starts making an enemy of all the influencers in Rome. He levies a massive tax on the people who were funding the Roman Empire, on the wealthiest of all the people. He makes enemies of the heads of state of all of these people who had had substantial influence in the empire up until that point. He made a mockery of those who were funding his own escapades. He made life difficult for everyone. And as such, Nero and his rise to power had made enemies of some very powerful people and had put himself at odds with the whole of the Roman Empire in the late 80s, 50s, and 60s, the great Roman fire occurs, during which time 10 of the 14 wards of Rome were burned to ash. And Nero saw this as his opportunity to create a scapegoat. Who can I find in our midst upon whom I can put all of the blame for all of the societal ills and woes that the Roman Empire is experiencing? Who can I blame for the problems that I have created? And Nero saw an opportunity to shift the blame on to Christians. After all, the Christians had abandoned the old gods in favor of this man, Jesus. Certainly, they were the cause of all of these issues. And the ancient historian, Tacitus, Writing at this time records this, neither human resources nor imperial generosity nor appeasement of the gods eliminated suspicions that the fire had been instigated by Nero. To suppress this rumor, Nero fabricated scapegoats and punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians, as they were popularly called. First, Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. Then, on their information, large numbers of others were condemned, not so much for incendiarism as for their antisocial tendencies. Their deaths were made farcical. Dressed in wild animal skins, they were torn to pieces by dogs, or crucified, or made into torches to be ignited after dark as substitutes for daylight. Nero provided his gardens for the spectacle and exhibited displays in the circus. I mean, imagine what it's like to be a Christian at this time. By virtue of your faith, you now find yourself in a circumstance where you can no longer go into the temples and worship the gods that belong to each working guild at the time. No longer can you participate in the sexual acts that were commonplace in the Roman Empire. No longer No longer could you just be an ordinary, average citizen, but you became, at least in the words of this one historian as they were popularly known, depraved. Not depraved by your actions, but depraved by virtue of the fact that you were not participating in the same sins that described uh, Roman society at this point. And imagine the difficulty of being a brand new Christian in Rome. Imagine the temptation to abandon faith. As you've seen, People with whom you gathered, your local church and assembly, you've seen them arrested, imprisoned, tortured, crucified, turned into human torches, torn apart by dogs. Imagine the temptation to turn and run and deny Christ. See, Mark writes this gospel out of a pastoral concern for brothers and sisters in the faith some of whom certainly he had known from his time in Rome with Peter. See, Mark wanted to remind these Christians who Jesus is and what he'd done. And Mark uses this account of Jesus' baptism and temptation to bring strength and resilience to Christians who desperately needed it. So he records that John came preaching the need for repentance. We talked about that at length last week, that John came to address the deepest need of the human experience and the human heart. And we pick up this fast-moving account yet again, beginning in verse 9, which says this, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, we address this at length um, during the baptism sermon, but I just want to specify something here. Do you notice that Mark has taken pains to emphasize the fact that John came to bring a baptism of repentance? And if that is the case, and the question that needs to run through our minds is, if John's baptism was one of repentance, then why in the world of all people did Jesus need to undergo baptism? And let me just state at the outset as a caveat that there are many answers to that question volumes have been written uh, answering that particular question. And I think there is more than one answer. In other words, I think Jesus' baptism accomplished more than one thing. But for the sake of this particular context, I think the emphasis is given that Jesus is identifying with sinners that he came to rescue. Now, why do I say that? If you look at Matthew's account of this same story, uh, John, prior to Jesus coming to be baptized, John says to the Pharisees, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, make st- to raise up stones to be children for Abraham. In other words, here's what John was declaring to these Pharisees, to these people who look to their own ethnicity and their own heritage as their means for righteousness. He says, you will not find salvation in your lineage. Your salvation does not rest in the fact that you were born in the right family, in the right ethnicity, to the right nation, at the right time, in the right family. Your salvation cannot rest in those things. It provides nothing. And John's point is, he goes so far as to say, "You think you're great because you were born as a Jew, as one of the chosen people of God, but understand that if God wanted, He could He could raise up sons out of these stones." In other words, your value and worth exists by virtue of the fact that God set his love and his affection on you. And it has nothing to do with who you are or what you were born into. See, the Pharisees were looking to their own heritage for right standing, but John says, you have to repent, you have to look to Jesus. The one who's going to come after me, the Messiah, the creator God who breaks into time. He's the one to whom you have to look. He's the one who deserves your affection and your attention and your life. So when Jesus comes to be baptized by John, John rightly asks the question, Jesus, don't we have this backwards? Why in the world would I baptize you? You should be baptizing me. And in saying, so, in saying this, John was reminding everybody that was gathered, I need repentance. I'm not excluded from this. I'm sinful. I'm broken. I'm the one that needs an external Savior. But Jesus' answer is fascinating because what Jesus responds with in the Matthaean account is this. He says, I am the good and obedient Son who does my Father's will perfectly. What he actually says is, let it be so now, for thus it is, fulfill, it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is saying, I don't need a baptism of repentance, but in doing this, I am showing everybody that I am the good and obedient Son of the Almighty Father. I am doing His will. And all of that stood as a declaration to the people who were gathered All of these people who were being made into a new family by the baptism of repentance of John, it was a reminder that they were not saved on the basis of their Jewishness. That they needed to be justified, made perfect, faultless, unaccusable, if I can make up a word. They needed to be counted righteousness and they were dependent on someone outside of themselves to provide the righteousness. It's with 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says when Paul writes for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So understand what Mark is saying, he's saying Jesus does not only identify identify with us in his death, but he identifies with us at every point and this is going to be a repeating theme throughout the book of Mark, that not only does he identify us with us in his death, but that in every moment of his life, Jesus is experiencing what it is to be human. He's identifying with us, so much so that Sinclair Ferguson, the great pastor and theologian, had this to say about it. He said, in his baptism, Jesus indicates how he will become our Savior by standing in the river in whose waters penitent Jews had symbolically washed away their sins and allowing that water, polluted by those sins, to be poured out over his perfect being. Therefore, a baptism not only serves as a picture of Jesus washing our sin away, but also as a picture of his taking our sin upon himself. See, in doing this, Jesus was signifying that his mission would be to endure the judgment of God's wrath for our sin. And I pull that from Luke chapter 12, verse 50, if you want to look that up on your own. But here, in this moment, what we see is a great high priest who forgives Christians by his own sacrifice. So this isn't a priest who sacrifices lambs and goats and bulls and doves for the sins of the individual. But here is the great high priest, the one who stands before time and before all creation, who is the agent of God's creation in the world. This same one now becomes the sacrifice for your sin and for mine. And that's not the only thing that happens here. Look at verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, and notice the connection here, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So in his baptism, Jesus identifies with sinners, but he also is identified as God. Do you see the beauty of the symmetry of what's happening in this simple two verses? Not only is Jesus identifying with sinners and their brokenness and their need for salvation under the wrath of God, but he also identifies saying, I am in fact God. And as Jesus comes up out of the water, we find the Holy Spirit coming down to him. See, in this poetic moment, we find the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit present. And when the phrase is given, the heavens are torn open, it echoes Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1, that says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your present, presence. Presence. And the father speaks in this very same moment saying, this is my son. He's showing here the unique divine relationship that he had within the Godhead. This is the inauguration of his mission. See, Jesus' ministry did not begin at Cana when he turns water into wine. Jesus' ministry begins at this very moment when the Holy Spirit comes upon him where the Father verbally confirms Jesus' identity and the Holy Spirit descends on him to accompany him and empower him for ministry. And understand this, the persecuted Christians in Rome needed to be reminded of the beauty and the wonder of the one whom they worshiped. And Mark gives them that in this text. They needed to be be reminded, just as we do, that Jesus is God. Who humbled himself and identified with him, but they also needed the reminder that Jesus was man. That he was tempted, the temptation was put before him to doubt the goodness and the promises of God, and they find that reminder in the next two verses. Look at verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days. There again is that number reminiscent of Old Testament Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. He's in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now I want to respect the brevity with which Mark speaks in this text. But lest we look past what's happening here, notice what it says, the Holy Spirit led Christ into the wilderness. See, Jesus is so confident and so dependent on the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit that he is willing to follow into the wilderness. And understand what all of this means. It means that the temptation of Jesus Christ did not come as a surprise to God, but rather, God was allowing this incident to take place in order that our redemption would be brought about. And in times of temptation in our lives, we need to be clear. James chapter 1, verse 13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And notice the, notice the progression of thought here. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. In other words, what it's saying is, God will never put evil desires into our heart In fact, he cannot because he himself has no evil desires. And this is something that's so easy for us to brush past and misunderstand in our own lives. Our question often becomes, why does God allow X? Why did God let me sin? Why did God put this desire in my heart? Why did God make me the way that I am? And how often in our own hearts, with our own struggles and temptations, with our own brokenness of mind, in our own sin struggles... And how often societally, with different individuals and groups of people identifying with whatever particular struggles they have, how often have we heard the refrain, why did God make me the way that I am? And the truth is, the way that we are is a result of the brokenness of the world in which we live that we were born sinners, that we had a sinner, sinful nature when we were born, that we verified that sin nature by decisions we made to ignore the rules and the commands and the instruction of God, and that we found ourselves in a position broken and perverted in our hearts, looking to things that cannot satisfy, that will not satisfy, rather than looking to the Creator who promised satisfaction. But understand what James Warren is reminding us. He's saying, God did not put evil desires in your heart. In fact, he can't because he does not have evil desires. But God does allow for the testing of our faith. And certainly scripture gives us some answer as to why that is. Because trials and temptations in the Bible are given this often unexpected description. In fact we're told counterintuitively we're told that trials and temptations can in fact be good and right things in our life because they act like purifying fire. And the illustration that's used every time that that's talked about is this idea of a goldsmith working with gold where he's melting it down to its basis parts, he's melting it down to a liquid, and then as that gold begins to melt down to a liquid, he would take a particular instrument and scrape it across the top, taking all the dross and all the imperfections and all the dirt and all the other substances other than gold itself, removing those elements and what he was left with was something that was purer than when it began. And the Bible's saying this is the sort of thing that happens in our lives when we face temptation. In those moments of temptation and trial, we are made abundantly aware of our desperate need for God. The reason those things are beneficial is because it's in those moments we become so aware of our desperation. And if you have a particular sin with which you've struggled for months, years, decades, undoubtedly you've experienced as a Christian those moments where you are crying out to God, I cannot do this. I know where this path ends, I've been here before, and I feel like I can't stop. And in that moment we become so aware of our desperate need for intervention. And the invitation that comes through trials and temptations is to see those trials as markers on the road to maturity they are pointing us to the only one who we actually need. Unfortunately, James doesn't just end in verse 13 by saying, when you're tempted, don't blame God. But he goes on to say this in verse 16 of James chapter 1. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, here's what he's saying. Whenever you find yourself in that moment where you are struggling once again with temptation or trial, you need to remind yourself of all the good and perfect gifts that God has given you in your life. So this is referencing, first of all, the everyday common graces, the things that we don't even think about in which God is demonstrating his love and his care and his pursuit for us. So just let me give you an example of something that happened this week for me. So on Thursday, I happened to be um, out in West Bend for something related to work and um, had a little break in the time that we were having. I was gonna run um, into the nearest town to to run to a store. And so I got in my car and started pulling out of the driveway. And as I came up to where the the driveway intersected with a county highway, um, I went to hit my brakes and my foot just kept going. And all of a sudden the pedal was all the way against the floor and my car is still sliding out into the intersection and so I'm looking both ways. And thankfully, in God's providence and provision, there was nobody coming in that oncoming traffic, and I was able to turn around and pull back, and it turns out something happened with my brakes. Now I'll be honest with you, I, I don't know that I have ever stopped to think about whether or not my brakes would work. It's just something I take for granted. I drive all the time, I drive... Driven thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of miles at this point. I have never stopped to think about the common grace that it is that when I put my foot onto that brake pedal, the car is going to stop until it didn't. And much like temptations, it is in that moment of weakness, in that moment of helplessness, that you realize your desperation, in this case, for a brake pedal that is connected to working brake lines. And what James is gonna say is, look to those common graces. The fact that we have food, that we have shelter, that we have loved ones, that we have clothes, that we have all of the things that we take for granted, particularly in the West with the blessings that we enjoy in this country. Particularly in situations like that, we do not see God's hand of provision in the everyday. And as if that's not enough, he's then going to go on to remind us, it's not only in the common graces, but also in the special graces. And the fact that you have a Savior, that you have a God who loves you, that you have a Christ who poured out his life for you, that you have, if you're a believer in this room, a Holy Spirit who indwells you and empowers you. These are the kinds of things that James invites us to remind ourselves of. And these are the sorts of temptations that were put in front of Jesus when he walked into the wilderness. And Mark's encapsulation of this text is interesting because he doesn't go into all the details that the other Gospels address. Typically, when we think about the temptation of Christ, we think about the account in Matthew where Satan comes and makes these three distinct offers to Jesus where he says, if you do this, I will give you this. Doesn't the Bible say that if you do this, God will do this? If you do this for me, I will do this for you. And we think about the magnitude of those spiritual temptations. But here's the problem with only thinking about it that way. The problem is, very quickly, we become disconnected from the temptation of Christ. We think about the fact that Jesus is, in fact, God, and so we stop and wonder, well, why in the world would that even be a temptation? How can Jesus possibly know what it's like to experience what I'm experiencing? And what I love about Mark's account is that he emphasizes that the temptation that happened, he says specifically, the temptation happened for 40 days. And in saying that, here's what Mark is trying to communicate to his original audience and to us. He wants you to see that the temptation that was put before Jesus was a very human one. Think about it. Jesus is alone for 40 days. We're told explicitly in this text that Jesus faced wild animals. And we're also told that he faced Satan directly loneliness, fear, temptation. This is a full on assault on the nature and character of Jesus, both as man and as God. And it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 5, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. When the author of Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every respect, here's what he means. To the fullest degree. To the fullest degree that one can experience temptation, Jesus experienced it. Those temptations were put in front of him. They were inherently attractive temptations. All the loneliness and all the false promises of physical fulfillment, of adulation and the worship of others, of wealth and respect, of respectability. All of these were put in front of Jesus. He experienced all of it, and he never sinned. There was nothing that would confront Jesus that would pull him from his Father's will. And Mark ends that portion by saying in verse 13, and the angels were ministering to him. See, Jesus was never really alone. The Holy Spirit who indwelled him and empowered him and God the Father through miraculous means, in this case angels, ministered to him. So the question becomes this then, what do we do in the face of temptation? Fortunately again, the author of Hebrews doesn't end. But in chapter 4, verse 16, after reminding us that Jesus Christ as the great high priest was tempted in every respect, he says that this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. sounds simple, doesn't it? the beauty and the poignancy of that promise is astounding. See, your hope cannot be in your own ability to withstand because if that is your hope, then hope is lost. But the invitation that's extended is to draw near to the throne of grace. That Jesus walked into the wilderness so that you could walk to the throne of grace. See, Mark wants us to recognize that everything Jesus did, from his baptism and temptation to his death and his resurrection was done for us, that your hope in the face of temptation must be that you have a high priest who faced temptation on your behalf and withstood. That the same Holy Spirit Who was poured out on Jesus and upon whom Jesus relied dwells within you if you know him. And we know that this wouldn't be the end of Satan's attacks on Jesus. His final effort was on the cross, where Satan for a for a few brief fleeting moments thought he'd won. Here was Christ, the Messiah, the Creator God, dead on a cross. And in the most beautiful twist of irony, it is the death of Jesus that brings about the death of death. It is the death of Jesus that brings about the defeat of Satan once and for all. It was the death of Christ that sealed the fate of Satan. And now being given that same Holy Spirit, we are empowered to resist and overcome the temptations of the evil one in our life, not through willpower or self-discipline, not through safeguards of our own construction, though none of those things are wrong, but by coming to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace in the time of need. There's a line in the Lord's Prayer where Jesus particularly prays, lead us not into temptation. And we have a tendency to read that as keep temptation away from me. Don't allow temptation to cross my path. And certainly that's one reading of the Lord's Prayer, but I don't think it's the most accurate one. Because the problem with presuming with presuming that is that we live in a broken world, that the presence of sin is all around us, that it's everywhere. Rather, I think what Christ is intending to communicate and praying, lead us not into temptation. I think the emphasis needs to be on the word into. He is, he is teaching us to pray that temptation not take us in. That it would not grab our hearts and grab our minds, that it would not steal our affections and begin the process of fantasy where we begin to wonder, Could it really be so bad? Doesn't it look good on the outside? Doesn't it look satisfying? But the truth of the matter is that Jesus was led into the wilderness to face the most direct temptation any human being has ever faced so that you and I could confidently pray the words, lead us not into temptation. So I'd invite you to look in your worship holder at the Lord's Prayer. And with that idea on our minds, would you pray that with me? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. He delivered us from evil. See, when Jesus won his victory in his death and his resurrection, In that moment, he released us from the penalty of sin. And the ever-present help of the Holy Spirit dwells within us to relieve us from the power of sin. And there is a day coming when we will be relieved from the very presence of sin. But in this season, we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, coming to the throne of grace and receiving what God promises he will deliver. What a confidence and what a gift. And all God's people said, Amen.